When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Soccer Show. This is your weekend review where we discuss the major talking points from all the weekend's action across the Atlantic. I'm Jack Collins and I'll be your host today and I'm delighted to welcome back my regular co-host, the Athletic's very own Jay Harris. How you doing, mate? And how how were your travels over that international break? Yeah, Amsterdam was amazing. So I've come back feeling fully refreshed. Um, I think by Thursday, Friday, I was just desperate for a weekend of, of club football and uh, we certainly got treated with some some crazy games, some really good derbies. So uh, yeah, feeling feeling full of energy, feeling really good. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was an interesting weekend and obviously we were excited for top level men's club football to return on this side of the Atlantic at the very least. And there was a lot to talk about. So we are going to talk about a very entertaining North London derby and a Mourinho off in Serie A without <laughs> the main man himself on the sidelines. But I think we have to start with a nine goal thriller today, Jay. Two sides of Manchester faced off with City beating United 6-3 the Etihad on Peacock. Jay, I feel almost mad saying this after eight league games, but are we witnessing something historical here in Erling Haaland? 14 league goals already. His third Premier League hat-trick today, just for context. That's as many as Cristiano Ronaldo has scored in, you know, over 240 games of Premier League football. Can he be stopped? I saw um, an interesting stat after the game, and it was comparing Erling Haaland to... um, a few other Premier League strikers over the years and how long it took them to uh, score three hat-tricks in the Premier League. And Haaland, obviously the only one in single digits. Um, but the next players, I think you're talking about the likes of Andrew Cole um, and they're all on 48 games, 50 games, whatever it is. We'll have to um, to double-check what the exact stats are. It's absolutely crazy what he does. I think we also need to remember maybe some people who didn't precisely know what his game was when he came to Man City, they just knew he was a good striker. If you look at those 14 goals that he scored, there's such a wide variety. You know, yeah. those opening goals he scored against West Ham, it was on the shoulder of the last defender, breaking at speed, you know, taking it taking it um, on the run, bending it past the goalkeeper, great goals. He's scoring a header today. And I remember lots of people in the past have said he's not particularly good in the air. Well, you can, you can scratch that off the list. <laughs> and then also just his awareness in the box time after time to make gambles. Um, it might look like that goal he scores where he gets on the end of the Bruyne's cross is easy, but he still has to kind of gamble and anticipate that the ball's going to land there. And he does, and he stretches. That can go wrong. That can go off the wrong part of his boot. It can nice like, skim over the bar. It can go out wide. Um, so it's just the variety of the goals that he scores that impresses me the most. He just consistently finds a way to, to hit the back of the net and it's just truly frightening. 14 goals after eight Premier League games. Um, so many people, I think myself included, if if I'm honest, were, I was never sceptical about his ability, never. I'd be foolish to say that. 
Um, but I just did think it would take maybe a little bit of time for him to to get up and running in a, in the Premier League. And now I think he's been my my captain on FPL for like five weeks in a row. Like I'm f- fully on the Holland train. Um, it's simply sublime what he does on a football pitch. So Manchester United never really had a chance, but they certainly made it easier for him as well, which I'm sure we'll get onto. Yeah, I mean, and on the FPL thing, it's interesting. You know, sometimes you think about who a team are playing, you know, before you, you set who your captain might yeah. be. It's not like that with Holland, is it? It's just like, well, it doesn't really matter who's playing. You just, just stick him in anyway. Manchester Derby, fine. You know, he's gonna he's probably going to bag a hat-trick and, and, and ultimately was, he's delivered again. Exactly. I was chatting to, I watched the game um, at my uncle's house, who's a Tottenham fan. I'm with my, my cousin, who's a couple of years older than me, and he's a big Man United fan. And I said to him, that, you know, whatever the score was, 5-2, 6-3, whenever it was, I said, oh, by the way, have you got Haaland in your FPL team? And he was like, no. And I was like, it's just added insult to injury. Like, I'm thinking, yeah. surely, surely even as a Man United fan, you can you can accept the fact that you've got to have him in your FPL team. So it's just like double injustice for him. But yeah, it's like, I, I remember having that moment of on, on yesterday morning, thinking, Saturday morning, sorry, thinking, Holland's playing Manchester United. Should I still captain him? And yeah. there was there was maybe a brief doubt in my mind. I was like, come on, with, with a record like that, you know he's going to get chances. You know he's going to put them away. Yeah, I think this has been some really interesting kind of discourse around the fact that and you know how he's become such a wonderful striker, kind of in and that all round striker. And there was that really interesting interview about him being you know quite small when he was younger and like learning how to develop as a, a striker against bigger defenders and then suddenly becoming massive and being like still got all the instincts of a very of a smaller striker who's willing to you know make those gambles to use their body and and add to that then the fact that he is just such a monstrous physical presence on top of all of it and it, it just feels like he's pretty much impossible to stop and but hat-trick also for Phil Foden I thought it was interesting that the two players here who grew up as City fans scoring the goals in a game that highlighted the golfing quality between two local rivals. <laughs> something to to ponder, and I'm sure something that City fans will, will, will absolutely love. Frankly, you know, this is a, a team who have been, you know, given all sorts of of accusations across the years of, of not having, you know, a fan base who were interested. But you're looking at these players here, and you know, Sergio Gomez, who came on and did really, really well as well. Another one, you know, where there are lots of pictures of him as a youngster growing up wearing City shirts and, and saying, you know, this is what I, you know, a team that I followed. Even if they weren't, you know, the team, you know, of my youth or of the the locality, very much the team he followed in the Premier League, and and this is a a kind of a phenomenon, I suppose, in some ways that's only going to go on as City's success continues because people around the world will love watching the City team as you know people loved watching the Barcelona teams of old or whatever those were, and will be attracted to them, and you will see more and more people being like, yeah, I grew up loving City, and and therefore wanting to play for them and it's, it's an interesting kind of thing that, that happens in the in the football world but just on Phil Foden a, a phenomenal answer to anyone questioning his credentials after what was I suppose a somewhat underwhelming international break yeah definitely I think the kind of frustration that people have with not necessarily Foden but his performances for for England is that we never truly know where Gareth Southgate's going to use him um, and at times We've seen Guardiola use Foden in, in all manner of different systems and, yeah. and different formations and positions, but it always seems to work. And I think a game like this today where you just see Foden popping up in, in so many different areas highlights why he's such a talented player. And if you look at that opening goal, I know during the, the broadcast, there was a lot of focus on Christian Eriksen being out of position and not defending. Yeah. But also look at where that move starts. Foden picks up the ball on the right wing 
and moves all the way inside and scores. So for him to kind of drift and pick and pick up the ball in those pockets of space, it's just simply amazing to kind of have a player like that. You know, Man City just have such a kind of like superstar talent on their hands. And how do you kind of stop that? Someone who just is so comfortable either playing off the left, dropping deep, coming in off the right. It's no wonder he scored that goal. Yes, Ericsson should have done better. But yes. there were so many other people who kind of probably were responsible for him. He was just kind of drifting in and out. Like That, that kind of movement is a nightmare for defenders. So it's no surprise that he kind of like delivered on the biggest stage. And, and going back to what you were talking about, players having that connection to the club that they grew up supporting, you could see that so evidently in the way he supported that goal because he he put his fingers to his lips. He was almost saying like, you know, I don't want to hear no talk. I'm, I'm a I'm a boy who's grown up supporting this club. I've just scored in a in a Manchester derby. And yeah. I, I thought that was quite a nice quite a nice touch as well. Yeah, I agree. Agreed. Um, well, look, we talked about City, but on on United, Ten Hag has received plenty of credit of late, including from us you know, for turning this team around. But it also felt like he got plenty of this game wrong today, I thought. You know, United outplayed for the majority of the game. City were in an unassailable position by half time. His game plan shredded by Guardiola. Now, he won't be the first or the last manager we say that about Pep Guardiola is one of the greatest managers of all time. And, and there are going to be plenty of managers whose game plans get shredded by him. But United, I thought there were glimmers of hope. Anthony scores a wonderful goal. Two stoppage time goals from Anthony Martial, whose return will be welcomed. And that's going to be a very interesting one going forward because he was obviously the kind of first choice number nine during preseason, then got this injury and it's always kind of fallen back and, and had to kind of readjust the system. But ultimately, United were just outclassed tactically today, I thought. Yeah, there are so many kind of different things to, to unpick from this game. And before talk about Ericsson, because there definitely needs to be a conversation about that. Mm. When your right-back, Diego Dallo, is getting booked in the first minute for fouling Jack Grealish, you know you're in for a really tricky afternoon. Yeah, long and day. That just, yeah. And then when I think Malassia picked up a, a yellow uh, around the 20, 25-minute mark, um, you know that that kind of maybe spoke to the naivety in the way that Manchester United uh, approached this game. You know, you know that... Manchester City are going to go, going to overload you out wide. You know you're going to be tested, and so for both of your fullbacks to kind of pick up quite needless yellow so early in a game, I think just kind of gives you an indication of of just how poor Manchester United were. And going on to Christian Eriksen, he's obviously a player I'm really fond of because I, I, I watched him so much for Brentford last season. But you know that he is a weapon going forward, and he can do you a job defensively but he's not somebody that you want to to rely on. So when you're looking at that Manchester United midfield three of Bruno Fernandes, Christian Eriksen and Scott McTominay, you're thinking Eriksen Haag, I think you might have been a little bit too brave here. I think yeah, you've kind you've of played, played your, your cards. Yeah, you've played your hand Definitely. You've definitely played your 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 hand too soon. That was a game that, that called for a 60, 70 million pound central defensive midfielder, but you left Casemiro on the bench. It didn't quite make sense. And... You look at the, the Phil Foden goal, which we've already touched upon. If you've got Casemiro on the pitch, that he would have been in that position and he would have dealt with that danger. And there was another goal where Ericsson was caught lacking as well. Haaland's goal, sorry, where Ericsson should never be competing against Erling Haaland in the air. And again, yeah. that just kind of gives you an indication that the way Eric Ten Hag approached this game um, was, I'm trying to think of a, a word that's not, too harsh, but it, it was just dreadful. It, it, he got the game plan completely wrong. Um, and that credit 
which he'd kind of picked up. It's not been eroded by any stretch of the imagination, but this has been a really brutal reality check. I'm sure some Manchester United fans ahead of the game were probably saying, oh, you know, this is a good opportunity for us to kind of work out how much progress we've really made. This is a bit of a, a win-win for us. We're not expecting to, to get anything against Manchester City, but, you, you know, yeah. we might be pleasantly surprised. I think the way they got torn apart in that first half was a real reminder that, yes, you know, you've just come off the back of, of four wins in a row, but there were times even in those games where you didn't play particularly well, especially against Arsenal, and maybe, you know, the luck just dropped to you in that circumstance. And now this is the kind of the reality of you've still got a hell of a long way to go um, until you kind of return to, to where you want to be at the top of the table. Yeah, I, I thought that was an interesting way of putting it there, Jay, in terms of I don't think that it's been eroded, any of that trust, because, you know, ultimately it's Man City and there is an element of like kind of anyone can get it, you know, when, when you're coming yeah. up against this Manchester City side. But, you know, Eric Ten Hag worked with Pep Guardiola for, for a long time at Bayern. You know, he kind of learned under him. He's always said he was one of his inspirations as a coach. And yet today you would be excused for suggesting that he might never have seen a a Pep Guardiola team play in the, in terms of how he set this team up to deal with them. And your, your point about the fullbacks, I think is absolutely spot on. You know, you, if you let your fullbacks get exposed to that early, early on, and you're not getting the, the support that you need from those wingers tracking back and helping, then you're going to be in a difficult position for long periods of this game. And, you know, to me, to be, give credit to the United fullbacks they didn't get sent off and yeah. and in that is it to to their credit but ultimately you are then playing you know you're, you're treading on, on on icy ground if you will or on thin ice and and it means that you have to be you know a little bit less aggressive and City made made them pay for it and you know ultimately we saw those two goals kind of in injury time make the scoreline respectable but realistically it, it probably it actually just softens the blow of what was a very, very one-sided encounter for, for, for long periods. I mean, look, City might not be top of the league, but they remain favourites by almost anybody that you speak to about the Premier League. I suppose the question, well, the final question at least, is whether the Hall and Factor also makes them Champions League favourites. Is he the missing piece that gets them over that final hurdle in European competition? One one final thing on, on Man United before I talk about Haaland again. I remember when Manchester United played Liverpool both times last season and I just had complete conviction they were going to lose those games heavily. And that's exactly how I felt today. I just knew that Manchester United were... I just had this really strong feeling that they were going to get turned over and they were going to get a really harsh reality check. And that kind of speaks volumes about where they kind of are at the moment, that it actually panned out that way. That It was kind of like that predictable that they were going to be that badly. On to, to Erling Haaland, that's exactly what he's been brought in for to kind of supply Manchester City with those X-factor moments. I think we've spoken about it before on this podcast when you look back to Real Madrid in the Champions League semi-final last year where, you know, Grealish kind of had a couple of opportunities and the ball just yeah. wouldn't drop over the line. Haaland is not one of those strikers who, as we well know, needs to have a lot of shots to warm up into a game or it needs to even have a lot of touches to warm up into a game. Just yeah. give him the ball in the box and he will score. Where so, he will be as well, because he never goes anywhere else. Yeah, exactly. And so it's going to be really exciting to exactly see how well he does do for Manchester City in the, the latter stages of the of the Champions League. Because as fun as it is to see him ripping it up in the Premier League, at the moment, it does just come across that it's almost too easy for him and you and you want to see him challenged. You know, there was a lot of talk before this game about how the last time Haaland came up against Martinez, I think Ajax beat Borussia Dortmund in the Champions League. But 
today, you know, he completely steamrolled that team. So I'm looking forward to the quarterfinals, the semifinals of the Champions League, if Manchester City do get there as we expect and kind of seeing him in a game that's going to be much tighter and if he kind of can deliver the goods in that moment. I think that would be that will be when we can truly say if he's taken this team to another level or not. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's go from a Manchester derby to a North London derby. Uh, one day before City's demolition job on United, Arsenal cemented their place at the top of the table in a way, I think, that would have pleased their fan base more than any other. A comprehensive <laughs> 3-1 win over local rivals. Tottenham on USA Network. Very impressive from Arsenal again, Jay. We talked about them in real depth before the international break, so we're not going to spend eons on this one. But this was an unbeaten side, Spurs side who were in good nick. Um, and at times, I thought Arsenal mesmerised them. Even going in at half-time level, I think there are a few maybe a few with, with very, very Spurs-heavy glasses on, but very few who would have said that Spurs deserved to be on equal footing at that point in the game. And then Arsenal got it done in the second half. Yeah, Arsenal were phenomenal in this game. And having watched Arsenal so much over the last couple of years and trying to work out this evolution under first, obviously, Unai Emery and then Mikel Arteta, mm. I think a lot of us have become very accustomed to Arsenal being put under pressure in a game and collapsing. And there was a 10-minute period after Tottenham equalised. Um, I thought we were potentially going to see that. And because we've seen it before, Gabriel has a mistake in him and he can get rattled. It, it obviously happened when Arsenal lost 2-1 to Man City last year. Um, he got sent off quite needlessly. And part of me had a, had a little bit of a feeling. Arsenal played so well up to this point. Tottenham have got back in it. Are they going to absolutely, you know, kind of blow all of the good work they've done out the door now and kind of let Harry Kane and Song Hyun Min take over? And the fact that they didn't do that and the fact they controlled the second half in the way that they did and they were good value for the lead even before Emerson Royale got sent off speaks volumes of how much this team has kind of progressed um, over the last 18 months or so. We've, we've touched on it before. Um, if you even break down the numbers a little bit, they're obviously on 21 points after eight games. They had 69 points at the end of last season in total. So, you know, I got my calculator out and did a little bit of maths. They've already got 30%. They've already got 30% of the total points they had last season after eight games. So we're not even a quarter of the way through the season. So that should give you an indication of how well this team is performing. They've got a really healthy buffer to Chelsea, Liverpool, Manchester United, who you would expect will be competing with them for the mm. top four. So, and then when you also factor into account Arsenal lost to Manchester United before the international break. So really this was only the second time they've come up against a top six rival in the league this season. Yes, well done Arsenal. You know, you've beaten Brentford 3-0, you've beaten Crystal Palace, but you lost to Man United. So how are you going to perform in a, in a derby against your rivals? Are you going to get it done and get it over the line? And they did. And maybe apart from that 10, 15 minute shaky spell, they did it in a really controlled way. So definitely my my opinion on this Arsenal team is starting to turn from, yes, they're good, but I'm not still convinced yet to actually they might be the real deal. Yeah, no, I think you're probably about spot on there. Um, just on Spurs, Conte stuck with two in midfield rather than the three who finished that game against Leicester. You can understand why given that this 3-4-3 really is the manager's preferred system and also given the form of Richarlison and Son on international duty. 
But it did mean that Arsenal were able to quite comprehensively dominate that midfield battle. And that meant the flow and the tempo of the game were dictated by the home side and they took full advantage, I thought. Just just on the home side, actually, I've got, got another little statistic for me. <laughs> but um, 10 of the last 13 North London derbies have been won by the home side, mm. um, including the last six. So we have to factor that into account a little bit. But going on to what Conte decided to do tactically, sticking to the formation that he knows, we've seen Zinchenko take up so many central positions for Arsenal this season. Yeah. So when you're putting Zinchenko, Zaka, Party, Odegaard into that mix, and it's coming, they're coming up against Hoiberg and Benton Kerr, it's no wonder kind of Tottenham's midfield was getting completely overrode. And then you kind of had White pushing up um, to support Saka with the overlaps and stuff like that. It just felt like Arsenal had so many different passing combinations and options that were available to them. So maybe Conte in hindsight would say, maybe I should have been a little bit more pragmatic and maybe sacrificed um, Richarlison and left it with Kane and Song Hyun Min up front by themselves and maybe thrown on Basuma for a little bit more protection. Um, but then Tottenham did still create a couple of chances on the break. So you can understand why he kind of stuck with, with what had worked in every single other game for them so far this season. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're probably right. It's just one of those things where you saw that ending game, you know, the end of the game against Leicester and it was three in the middle and they were just able to kind of unleash while still having the ability to shut things down in the middle. And I just thought Arsenal looked at it and went, well, if you're going to do that. And, and, and actually the fact <laughs> that, you, you know, you're making the point about Ben White getting forward. You know, when I was looking at these lineups and going, okay, does this Arsenal team basically tilt into a, you know, a kind of 3-4-3 of their own in, in yeah. many ways sometimes with this, or at least a 3-5-2, um, because Ben White will tuck in as the third centre-back because that will help to cover the threat of the three up top. Um, you know, take one of the, the front attacking three each and, and, and deal with that. But the fact that White was so far advanced for long periods, I thought was just another marker of how you know, dominant Arsenal were in terms of the ball. But I do want to focus on Spurs because we've spoken a lot about Arsenal a couple of weeks ago. Um, but Spurs remain quite a strange side to gauge, I think. You know, they have moments where they explode into life, as you say, they look electric. And equally, they have long spells where their passivity, their lack of possession, means that games feel like they're passing them by. Now, you can't argue with results, and I'm not going to try to. And Conte will say, it doesn't matter how you play. You know, the whole thing is suffering sometimes so that you can <laughs> win. And their start of the season has been exceptional on that front in the league. But there are some performances, like this one, you know, and, and the game against Sporting in, in, in the Champions League, that leave more questions than answers. And, and I just thought that this was one of those games where Spurs failed to take anything by the scruff of the neck. And there are going to be points in the season. Look, this isn't to say that this philosophy doesn't work because we've seen it with Conte before that it can it can work wonders. And I think that he's already improved this Spurs side massively. But there are also games where you watch it and you go, if you'd grab that a little bit more, would would there be something different to, you know, to this side? Would there be just a little extra dimension that would push them from a good side to a great one? I think we have to remember Conte's still not been in charge of this team for for a year. I think it's maybe a couple of weeks away, but he's still, you know, still not kind of hit that, that one year yeah. anniversary. And the kind of um, dramatic end to what happened last season with them beating Arsenal to the top four and obviously that memorable North London derby kind of makes you forget that there were spells in the final couple of months of the season where Tottenham didn't play particularly well and Antonio Conte was very vocal about that. And the pendulum between who was going to get top four swung a lot between Tottenham and Arsenal. And you could make a pretty strong argument that Arsenal shouldn't even really have had a chance of getting top four when you consider how 
the, the quality that Tottenham had in their squad and the, the kind of injuries Arsenal suffered with Kieran Tierney and, and Thomas Partey. So we should remember that Tottenham are definitely still kind of finding their way under Conte in that regard. And it's not necessarily a new phenomenon for them to amaze us one week and then kind of flatter to deceive the next. And then you also have to include the fact he is still trying to work out the best way to incorporate all of those new signings. You know, we've hardly seen Ibasuma. Jed Spence is um is a mystery. He's um, in the cold somewhere. I don't know where, but he's it, in the it's cold. Just, uh, it's just bizarre what's kind of gone on with, with, with Jed Spence. Kulisevsky was obviously injured for this game. He's trying to work out how to to use Richarlison in tandem with, with Harry Kane and Son Heung Min. So you can kind of understand a little bit why it doesn't always look like the most cohesive package. But then obviously to caveat that, they're still playing well enough. They're still putting points on the board. Mm. So it makes you think, wow, if there comes a point in the season where this all does click, then they're going to be a really, really threatening team. So yeah, it, it was definitely one of those games where, especially Song Hun Min, there were times where he looks really off it today, uh, yesterday, sorry. Um, really couldn't deliver his passes in the final third. But when he kind of gets that understanding of how to work with Harry Kane and Richarlison, you'd expect it's it's all going to be firing for them. Yeah, I mean, three exceptional players. I don't think anyone's doubting that at all. It's just a, a funny one and just making it work for Spurs. Last question on this game then. Emerson Royale, red card or not for you? It's not a nice tackle, but there's not a huge amount of force in it either. It, I'm a bit undecided with it, to be honest. It's one I think you'd want to be given if it was against your team and fume with if it was one of your players. However, there is no denying it's a bit of a stupid challenge and one that felt incredibly unnecessary given the situation of the game at that exact moment. Feel free to, to disagree with me on this, but I think it's 100% a red card. Okay. Um, and I think it's because if you look at where the ball is, when uh, Emerson Royale attempts to make that tackle, there's not a, <laughs> there's no chance of him getting that ball, yeah, yeah, which exactly. makes me think there. I don't want to say there was malicious intent behind it, but it kind of falls under violent conduct, like it, yeah, like it was okay. a dangerous tackle because it's so far past him. He's only even attempted it for naughty reasons. Shall we? Naughty reasons makes naughty me sound reasons, like a. Yeah. <laughs> makes you sound like yeah, we're, not so go, we're not gonna go on what that makes you sound like we're not gonna go down that path today in this podcast. um uh, but yeah it makes me think that he yeah not malicious intent but he was a bit frustrated in the game yeah, and it got the better of him yeah. and it was a really poor a really poor tackle and there was just a slight danger to it because of because of where it caught Martinelli so live when Anthony Taylor pulled out the red card I thought oh you know, I've I've not quite seen that in a perfect angle. I'm maybe a little bit surprised. But then when I saw the replay and, like I said, that how far away the ball was from from Raya when he went for it, I thought, yeah, that's I, I think that's a very fair red. Yeah, I think fair. That's a very it's very well explained that actually, Jay. Yes. And, and, and when you when you put it out there, I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna agree with you. I'm gonna yes. agree with you. Um, <laughs> let's leave the Premier League behind for the moment though, and let's pop over to Serie A uh, because in Italy we saw a cracker between Jose Mourinho's current and former Serie A sides on Paramount Plus as Inter hosted Roma. Uh, although Mourinho was actually serving a touchline ban and therefore watched this one. You're like this, in a van in a car park of the Giuseppe Miazza. Uh, Roma had been the team most underperforming their XG in front of goal 
across the entirety of Europe, or at least across the entirety of Europe's top leagues ahead of this weekend. But they put those finishing demons to the sword a little bit here. Two brilliant goals. The first from Paolo Dybala, who has completely landed on his feet in Rossi. They missed him so much when they played Atalanta last week, and the finishing was woeful, frankly. Uh, but he scores a cracker here, and he just seems to be the only Roma player at the moment with any consistency to their finishing, and he makes him incredibly important to this team. All I was going to say was uh, on Mourinho is that you sure he didn't sneak into the stadium as he famously once did in a I think it was in a laundry basket when he was Chelsea Chelsea's manager. I rule nothing out with Jose Mourinho. The man is a law unto himself, and I am completely here for it. Have you not heard that story before? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if he did here, but it wouldn't surprise me whatsoever. But yeah, but going on to the actual game itself, as you said, Pala de Bala, it was a fantastic finish as well, and there were a couple of kind of other opportunities he had in the game to to kind of make it his own. I think um, I think before the international break, I held my hands up and said, I may have got certain things about Inter Milan completely wrong. And this result has kind of only reinforced that point when back in, you know, the final weeks of August, the beginning of September, I said, we shouldn't really worry about them that much. They're still kind of in touch of the top of the table. Yeah. Things will work out. And it kind of feels like the the wheels are coming off um, a little bit. They've obviously lost half of their games. They've lost four of their eight games that they've played. They've conceded 13 goals, which to put it into perspective, Sampdoria, who are bottom of the league, have conceded 16. So Inter Milan comfortably have one of the worst records in the league. They're now eight points behind Napoli and Atalanta. So as good as Roma were, and um, I'm sure we'll touch on Chris Morning as well, because his yeah. Italian adventure just takes on an even more beautiful kind of moment. The the journey just gets even sweeter. And, and sweeter. the excuse to crowbar an ex-Fulham player into this podcast, <laughs> I will take, Jay, don't you worry. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so as good as Roma were, um, Inter have some really kind of serious questions to ask themselves at the moment about why it's not not working. And again, the fact that they went 1-0 up in this game and kind of blew it um, kind of makes them all the more pertinent. Yeah, I mean, we'll come back to Inter and the questions and, and one big question in particular, to be perfectly honest with you. But let, let us talk about Smalling quickly. Um, he was <laughs> immense in, in both boxes here, I thought. You know, his, his goal was only slightly more important than a sensational block in the dying embers of this game. He's a perfect example of someone who took a risk with a move outside of his natural comfort zone. And it's very firmly paid off for him. He's loved in Rome. He's a crucial part of an impressive defensive unit. His story makes me really happy. And, and this is going to sound, well, maybe not weird, it won't sound weird because I come out with outlandish statements all the time, but I think he deserves genuine consideration for the England World Cup squad. Although I am aware enough to know that this is a big old long shot in, in real terms. All I was going to say about Chris Morning is that if you go down the, the squad lists of, you know, Arsenal, Chelsea, Manchester City, Manchester United, Liverpool, Tottenham, over the past five, ten years, you're always going to kind of find those senior pros who are maybe in the later stages of their career who have a decision to make about whether they look somewhere else for a new challenge or whether they're kind of content at kind of playing a bit more of a, of a backup role on the team. And and Smalling was definitely in that position at Manchester United. This is no disrespect to Phil Jones, but you kind of look at Phil Jones kind of still, yeah. still there. And I'm sure there are plenty of other players at other clubs who could kind of serve as a, as a similar example. And, as you kind of alluded to, Smalling kind of had the courage to to take a different challenge on a completely different culture and just continues to go from strength to strength. It's kind of, I think, completely changed how 
people view him. I think before they always just kind of viewed him as, oh yeah, you know, he was he was an okay defender for Manchester United. I think when people look back on Chris Smalling's career, they might actually bring up what he did in Roma first, just the fact that he yeah. kind of yeah, completely yeah. blossomed over there. And um, I don't think it's out of the question to to kind of say he should be in consideration for the England squad. Especially Whether if Gareth he would continue Southgate, to play with a back three, right? Where he has really thrived in, of, in this Roma side. Of course, of course. The the issue is, and talking of crowbarring Fulham into to podcasts, I'm obviously always going to shout out my, my, my Brentford connections. We've seen Gareth Southgate over the last two weeks not prepared to give different players an opportunity yeah, other than agreed. the ones he trusts. I was... My flight from uh, Amsterdam landed. I know we're kind of going off tangent here, but my flight from Amsterdam landed just as the the second half of um, England Germany finished, and I was just perplexed that he didn't give Ivan Tony a chance. I was perplexed that he didn't give Fikayo Tomori a chance in either games. So Chris Smalling, who I think Southgate's kind of been a little bit vocal about in the past of maybe not having the right kind of skill set in terms of playing the ball out from the back and and that kind of stuff unfortunately, as well as he's playing for, for Roma and making vital contributions at both ends of the pitch, um, people that he does fancy aren't even getting minutes. So people that he doesn't fancy, um, it feels like it's not going to happen. But if it was a, a wild card uh, pick and he went to the tournament, what an incredible story that would be. It just feels like it's uh, unlikely to happen, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm I'm all here for redemption arcs. They're they're among my favourite narratives in football. So uh, so it would be a nice one to see if Chris Morning buying with you. I'm, I think it's probably very doubtful. Uh, going back to Inter, I thought Inzaghi might go during the international break, but they have stuck with him. And yet, as you said earlier, a case of more of the same here in in many ways. Their goal actually ends up coming from some quite poor goalkeeping by Jose Patricio. There's a lack of dynamism in their attacking phases. You know, the only one that, that really got going was the, the Ed and Jekka goal ruled out for offside. And then it felt a little bit all the same from Inter. They continue to underwhelm. How long has Inzaghi got to turn this around? Because, you know, you pointed out where they are in the table and the fact that this now feels like a longer run than just a bad blip of form. Yes, they can turn to the fact that Romelu Lukaku is out and, and that is a major blow for them. But equally he can't be the answer to every single problem, especially when the problems are at both ends of the pitch. Yeah, like you said, you can't just rely on Romelu Lukaku to kind of be some special magic ointment and he comes back into the starting eleven, and, and all your problems are solved. Teams of the, the quality of Inter Milan squad should be able to, to find their answers in games like this, even without Lukaku. And yeah, Lukaku's a goal scorer. As I mentioned, Inter currently have one of the worst offensive records in the entire league, they've got the worst offensive record in the in the in the top half of the table. I think they're the only team in the top half of the table that's conceded ten plus goals. So that should kind of give you an indication of, of how poorly they're playing. I don't yeah. know how much time Inzaghi's given, but it certainly has, as I have, as I've kind of painfully admitted, crossed over from, you know, this is just a shaky start to the season into there are kind of some some underlying problems problems that that really need to be addressed here because. That gap between them and Napoli and Atalanta is only growing. But then if this continues and we don't see like an upturn in form soon, the question's going to go from uh, Inter Milan involved in the title race to Inter Milan face a real challenge on their hands to even get into the into the top four. And that's when it becomes... Problem City, yeah. A, a, almost a little bit embarrassing for, for a team that's kind of got the players that they, they have. When you've got Lautaro Martinez, when you've got Romelu Lukaku... You you should be 
fighting for for the for the Scudetto. So if you're all of a sudden scrapping around for for fourth, fifth, and sixth, and again we've spoken on this podcast so many times before about how um, just crazy the competition is in in Italy this season, they could very quickly find themselves in a position that's impossible to kind of come back from. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's one of those, isn't it? And, talk, and talking of the top four, Roma sixth, four points off top. Their finishing has been a problem, as, as we said at the top. Their main Achilles heel in many ways. But if they get back to a statistical norm there, as we kind of expect them to, expect Tammy Abraham to kind of get through this goal drought, expect Abada to continue goal scoring. Lorenzo Pellegrini has been a, a massive wasteful in front of goal this season, which is very unlike him, frankly. Um, and, and I think that will sort itself out, to be honest, as they kind of just revert to, to the mean. But they will remain a problem for almost anyone, you know, as soon as that goal scoring blip comes to a close you know with Inter floundering Juventus still a bit of a question mark there can be no doubt that they're in this top four conversation this season can there yeah definitely um as you've kind of said Dybala's just kind of given Roma a, a completely different dimension that's what they've brought him in for you know to make the difference in in games like that and with Juventus yes I know that they won 3-0 it was it was against Bologna right it was indeed yeah yeah so we know that Juventus have beaten Bologna and kind of They've definitely cast away those demons, but they, it, was, it was fine. It was it was there was grand exactly. you know, without without got, being unbelievable. Exactly, they've got a little bit of breathing space, but there's just still so much unpredictability in the season, and so many other teams, Inter, Juve, not playing anywhere near their best. That there's an opportunity for a Roma, uh, an Atalanta, Atalanta, and Napoli to kind of do something this season that we've not seen for for several years in Italy. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Okie dokie. Let's do it, shall we? Let's go around the grounds to finish this off. We'll start in the Bundesliga where, uh, well, Bayern fans will be happy to know that they snapped their win the streak with an absolute demolition job on Bayer Leverkusen. This is their uh, this is their good game. You know, it's like the opposite of a bogey team. You know, when, when Bayern are in a bad street, they're like, oh, get Leverkusen in here. We'll, we'll, we'll beat them. We always beat them. Uh, they hammered them 4-0. It was another sensational performance from Jamal Musiala. He keeps getting better and better. You know, unbelievable in the international break. Been you know, sensational, been Bayern's top scorer this season so far. He is just very, very special and remains a joy to watch. Uh, it was a good weekend on both fronts, actually, for Bayern fans because Dortmund lost 3-2 to Cologne. Uh, they're missing Marco Royce and Giorena from injury problems. It was frantic, but some major problems were in their heads uh, for Borussia Dortmund once again, mostly defensively, where mishaps on mishaps frankly and it was a very very strange game and and they didn't deserve to win it so um a, a bit a bit unfortunate considering they felt like they were gathering some momentum as Bayern were floundering but you know they've, they've basically thrown that away and Bayern back up to third in the table had their blip already and it does look a little bit like same old, same old. Um, early leaders Union Berlin lost as well, 2-0 to Frankfurt. But in some ways, I thought Union were actually a bit unlucky. Now, it was a very odd game for me in, in, in some ways because, for once, Union dominated the ball and created a host of chances, because which they haven't done basically all season. But also, for once, they were really easy to break down, which they haven't done all season either. So, uh, a sort of very much on-the-back-foot game where you're like, 
hang on, this is the probably the best you've played in terms of holding the ball and uh, and actually being able to carve out chances, uh, but also kind of at the cost of defensive solidity. So I suppose one to keep an eye on. They remain top, but only on goal difference. Um, but Leipzig, Jay, excellent. They put Bochum to the sword 4-0. Ups and downs to Marco Rosa so far, as we've discussed. But the movement of Werner and Kunku, a joy to behold in this one. I was just going to say quickly on, on Musiala, and I could be putting my, my neck on the line here, but I was asked a couple of uh, weeks ago to do some some World Cup predictions, and I was asked for who the breakout player could be, and I said Musiala. But I was also, and this is where I'm putting my neck on the line, I was also asked for um, who, which player might struggle. And obviously you chatted to Felipe last week about the kind of situation with the, the USA men's team at the moment, and I said Christian Pulisic. So I feel like, both of those predictions at the moment are kind of going in a very steady direction to potentially being correct. But I've now cl- completely jinxed myself. So I'm very much regretting this this cocky kind of outburst <laughs> that's come out of nowhere. Um, well, Christian Pulisic got his assist of the weekend. I'll take that. I'll yeah, take that. that, is, that America. I was happy. Yeah. The, re- the redemption arcs are coming. And, and on Union Berlin, as you've kind of said, it's quite strange because they've been overperforming their uh, XG so much. I think before this game, uh, I was reading an article from this this gentleman called Ninad, who I, I met a couple of weeks ago, and he'd, he'd written about Union Berlin. I think they had 16 goals from a non-penalty XG of yeah. like 5.1, something ridiculous. So for them to then lose a game where they actually created a lot of high-quality chances, it's just like the most typical football thing that you've ever heard of. But then coming full circle on, on Leipzig, I think it was important for them to, to obviously get that win because they obviously had the shaky start to the season with Tedesco and got rid of him. And then they obviously had that amazing win over Dortmund in, in with Rosa. But then ever since then, still kind of been stuttering. So it kind of feels like this might be the latest opportunity for them to just kind of kick on and, and really find a level of consistency. Yeah, I mean, worth pointing out the Bochum are dreadful. Um, bottom of the Bundesliga, eight played, zero wins, one draw, seven losses, 23 conceded. They <laughs> they are not a good side, but uh, a morale-boosting one for Leipzig. Exactly, exactly. You, you can only beat who's in front of you, right? You can indeed. You can indeed. Uh, well, in France, PSG did that just just about once again. They beat Nice 2-1. Uh, Leo Messi scored a wonderful free kick and Kylian Mbappe sealed it late on. We heard over the international break that the harmony in the squad might be questionable, but the, quel- the quality is very much not questionable. Um, Marseille's best ever start to the Ligue 1 campaign has continued with a 3-0 win at Angers on Friday night. And Lorient's fairy tale start under rookie manager Régis Lebris also goes from strength to strength. They beat Lille 2-1. Very impressive this. I really, really like this Lorient squad. Young, uh, exciting, dynamic, and, and Régis Lebris doing a very, very good job there. Uh, Lons as well recorded a big win. They beat Lyon 1-0 with a late penalty, and they're up to fourth in the table. It's, it's an interesting kind of dynamic when you look at the table in Liga, Jay, and, you know, aside from PSG being top of the pile, which is, you know, kind of as you expect, and, and Marseille being second is, is nice to see, frankly, as as one of kind of the great French teams of, of the last couple of years. But the rest of it's a bit of a free-for-all, frankly. Yeah, I mean, you obviously look at Lyon and Monaco a couple of places down and you'd expect mm. them to, to make a little bit of a push as the season progresses. But you obviously mentioned about Nice losing to PSG, and we, we've, we've spoken a few times about Nice and just the the, the weird, weird club. 
Yeah, yeah. I was trying to find the right word and about how funny it would be to to kind of do like an Amazon documentary on on what on earth is going on there. Joe Bryan running a, a reading club on the on the French Riviera. Things I can <laughs> things I can get behind. <laughs> but just um the fact that they've only got eight points from their first few games is is a little bit concerning when you consider how much of a, a recruitment drive they went on over the summer. You'd think that they would have been much higher up. So yeah, definitely a, a little bit of a strange look to the, the table at the moment, apart from the fact that PSG are on top, of course. And in terms of squad disharmony in PSG, really, I, I've never I've never heard of that one before. <laughs> People just refusing to answer questions about each other on international duty. Very, very interesting, I thought. <laughs> um, all right, elsewhere in Italy, Juve answered, as we said, at least a few critics with a 3-0 win over Bologna, where actually, to be fair to him, Dusan Vlavic felt a little bit more like the force of nature that we know he can be. Milan survived a late scare uh, in a game against Empoli. They were 1-0 up in the 92nd minute and they conceded an equaliser. And you're going, oh, God, Milan have, Milan have done a silly, only to strike back twice in the dying minutes to win the game 3-1. You know, there's three stoppage time goals in, in this one. Uh, that man, Rafael Leal, once again coming up big for the Rossoneri. Uh, and Atalanta edged Fiorentina, whilst Napoli beat Torino to maintain the pair's pace setting at the top of the table. Uh, and Lazio hammered Spezia to leapfrog Milan into third spot on goal difference. Lazio are quietly going about their business. They're not perfect, and we, we've spoken about it at length, but they are, you know, winning games comfortably at this point in many ways. And they're having a bit of a funny time in Europe. But, you know, on the whole, in Serie A, quietly just doing the business. Really, they're in the exact same situation as, as Roma, where if you're looking ahead of the start of the season, you might not necessarily put them in that conversation for the top four, or mm. they certainly be outsiders. But where you've got so many other teams underperforming, um, Lazio don't have to be great week in, week out, but if they just keep grinding those, those results, then you know they might be in with a really good chance of, of kind of sneaking something over the course of the season. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, well, in Spain, uh, Real Madrid's perfect start of the season came to an end. They could only draw one all with 10-man Osasuna, a red dud from Karim Benzema, who missed a penalty, which would have won Madrid the game late on. Uh, Barcelona took full advantage and they went top of the table thanks to their win over Mallorca. A single Robert Lewandowski goal enough to seal the deal and fire them to the summit in La Liga. Real Betis lost 1-0 to Vigo, although Los Verde Blancos were down to 10 men for the majority of the game. Uh, an athletic club had themselves another night. They won 4-0 against Almeria and they jumped Betis in the table. Uh, another great time for the Williams brothers, this time them assisting each other in this game. Lots of fun cool. to be had. Yeah, it's been just a brilliant week to be Nico and Yaki Williams, frankly. I think they're just having, having a cracking time. They did go and make their international uh, debuts. One day after the other and you know, everyone just seems to be having a wonderful time at Athletic. I'm going to Bilbao in a couple of weeks and I'm really excited about just jumping on this train and enjoying myself so um, that will be that will be a fun one. Um, just um, Sorry just quickly by the way one there were five I think there were five red cards in that league this weekend mm -hmm. so clearly some fr some frustrations have been building up over the international break and they all got unleashed and I can't believe you glossed over Lewandowski's goal because that is a real, <laughs> real thing of beauty. If you listeners, if, if you've not seen it yet, please do because we all know Lewandowski is an out and out striker. But the piece of skill he produces before he bends it into the corner from a quite silly angle, anyways, is uh, is mesmeric. Um, I replayed it 
quite a few times. Um, it's that good. So please, please go check it out. No, oh, yeah, no, thank you. That's that's a very fair point, and I uh, <laughs> I did it. It didn't deserve to be glossed over. Such a, a, a wonderful goal. Um, Atleti beat Sevilla two 0 as well. That will pile yet more pressure on Yuled Lepetegui. A, a strange one. It, the question is who sacked first, him or Inzaghi? I think in, in in many questions around the game this weekend. And Real Sociedad played out probably the game against the, of the weekend against Girona. They won five three. It's just one of those kind of strange ones. You're going, what's going on here? But the lead switched about four times in this one. It was genuine chaos, and uh, I really enjoyed myself. It was, it was, it was lots of fun. Some good goals in that game as well. Um, let's go to the Premier League to wrap things up. Bruno Large sacked by Wolves, Jay, after their two nil loss to West Ham. Harsh? I don't think so. If you go back to um, what happened at the end of last season as well, I think mm. they've only won one in the last 15 games. Um, so although from the outside looking in, it might feel like a knee-jerk reaction. Clearly, there's just been a loss of Build form up. over a long period of time. But then also the kind of cards that he's been dealt in terms of, you know, trying to, you know, almost rebuild Raul Jimenez after what the striker's kind of been through. And then obviously, you know, you'll be able to pronounce the striker's name better than I Elijah. Ah, you know, I love that. Um, obviously, you know, him suffering such a serious injury as well doesn't help. Um, but obviously just felt like Wolves were potentially becoming a little bit too predictable. And we know how, how quickly things change in the Premier League. And they clearly felt like if they didn't do something soon, um, Wolves were going to get cut adrift at the, the bottom of the table. So, Although it's always a shame to see a manager go, I think when you kind of look at some of the deeper lying issues that they've been experiencing and and look back to how they've been performing since the tail end of last season, you can kind of understand it a little bit more. I think it's an interesting one because, you know, obviously Lars did really well when he came in at first. And then, you know, kind of from February onwards, Wolves Mm. were kind of dreadful and really messed up their chance of securing European football. At one point, it looked like they were favourites to win to be Champions League, you know, get that fourth spot themselves. And they fell right away from it. This summer, he's clearly tried to rebuild it. He's tried to move Wolves from a team that played five at the back to a team that played four at the back. Connor Cody, who's been the heartbeat of this defensive unit, moved on this summer. And, you know, they've tried to kind of refresh themselves. It hasn't worked. But equally, as we said, you know, Kalajic, who's going to, the striker brought in to end their woes in front of goal, injured after, what, 40 minutes of his Premier League debut um, and out for the entire season. They've brought Diego Costa in late. I, I don't, I think you're right in that it's not harsh because, you know, the, the past sort of eight months have been quite poor. But equally, I, I do kind of feel for Large a little bit because he's clearly got to this point where he's gone, right, Wolves were this team that were kind of based in the five-of-the-back system under under Nuno Espirito Santo. And he tried to move away from it and had to move back for it because he didn't have the personnel to move on. This summer, it feels like he went, right, I need these players if this is how we're going to move from this system. Fine. Um and then it just kind of hasn't worked out with injuries. And But they don't feel a million miles away from being good again. And, and that's maybe why I was why I was kind of thinking it might have been a little bit premature is the wrong word, as we say. You know, it's, he's had his chance. But mm. it, it just felt like they might have been moving towards a, a better outcome with, with Costa coming in and, and giving them something different in, in those arees. And suddenly it's like, right, start again now. How, where do you go next? It's, it's also... Um, just a little bit strange when you've just had a two-week international break yeah. and we've had several clubs 
fire managers um, in the last couple of days or so. So we obviously had it with Rob Edwards at, at Watford, and that was a really strange situation because apparently, from from what I've read from Adam Levitar on the Athletic, there were a lot of people in the building that knew Rob Edwards was going to be fired, but he had no clue. Whole city getting rid of Shota Avaladze on the day of their game, and then coming to that, that was overdue. To be fair, <laughs> I know, but it's still it's still brutal. And then getting rid of Bruno Larger just after you've had a two week international break is is a little bit strange. But obviously, you mentioned Cody, and we've seen it at Leicester. What getting rid of a, a player and a personality like Kasper Schmeichel can kind of do that kind of yeah. impact, yeah. and that definitely applies to Wolves. It wasn't just what he did in terms of his contributions on the pitch, but also, you know, the way he galvanised the team as, as the captain. Also, that's Roman Saiz. So maybe Bruno Lage has been dealt a little bit of a bad hand in terms of the fact that he's he was kind of tasked with regenerating and refreshing this team and kind of moving on for the Nuno Espirito Santo era. But it's easier said than done. Um, and what's kind of happened is he's been caught in this awkward transition of trying not to rely on these same old players, but I'm not really too sure what to do. And it's all got a little bit muddled and it's just resulted in there not really being that much cohesion on the pitch. And it's it's all kind of drifted slowly to, to him losing his job. Yeah, no, I think that's all fair enough. Uh, Liverpool's strange start continued. They drew three all with Brighton. Roberto De Zerbi's first game, his new club. Leandro Trossard hat-trick. That's not something I thought I would be saying this weekend. <laughs> Incredible entertainment, but problems persist for Jurgen Klopp. There was some good stuff in this game from Liverpool, to be honest. There was also just some quite bad stuff. Yeah, I- Klopp came out ahead of this game and was obviously asked a lot of questions about Trent Alexander-Arnold and and Klopp said, I'd sign Alexander-Arnold no matter what team I was coaching anywhere across the world. Um, And also spoke about how, yes, Trent Alexander-Arnold does get caught out defensively, but that's often because he's the most advanced of Liverpool's defenders. So it kind of makes sense that opposition teams would kind of target that area. But Klopp was really quick to point out the whole defence has, has underperformed this season. No one's looked 100%, which brings me to kind of what happened in this game because, yes, you could make an argument that Trent was... I don't think Trossard's opening goal was his was his fault. I think it was a great yeah. piece of skill for, for, from Trossard. I think most defenders in the world would, would get undone by that. But there were certainly other players who were guilty of having really, really underwhelming games. Van Dijk's not looked amazing this season. As a Fulham fan, I'm sure you'll delight in kind mm-hmm. of f- throwing in what Mitrovic did to him. <laughs> um, Fabinho didn't look great. So there's the whole kind of component parts of Liverpool are not fully functioning as they should be. And then to make matters even worse, they've kind of got this kind of awkward situation with Darwin Nunez at the moment where you spent so much money on him and he's... It's not that he's not in the team, but it's like, should he be playing? Shouldn't he be playing? How do you kind of utilise him at the moment? It's all become a little bit confusing and and muddled. Whereas ahead of the season, you're thinking, you know, wow, look at all the options they've got at centre-back. You know, maybe they needed a new midfielder. You know, Darwin Nunez Nunez has come in and, and they're going to be on something really special. And the kind of complete reverse has happened for some reason the team looks like it's in an even bigger state of confusion than you would have expected. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Chelsea also left it late in Graham Potter's first league game as manager of Chelsea. They beat Palace at Sellers Park, but the winner came from last year's Crystal Palace Player of the Season, Chelsea Loney, Connor Gallagher. Sometimes, Shay, the scripts just write themselves. It's brutal. And you obviously asked me about um, Emerson Royale's red card earlier, and I, I can't resist talking about Thiago Silva because I, I think that's a red card. It's it's clear. I think, I think it's a red card every day of the week in any league in the world. It's a red card in Sunday league. It's a red card in the Premier League. <laughs> it, it's one of the most obvious red cards I've ever seen. It's um, just the denial of a clear goal-scoring opportunity. Um, you know, Jordan I, you would have been in... Hands deliberate handball. It's two red cards. Well, well, <laughs> well that's what I mean. It's, you know, uh, I honestly think when Thiago Silva got back to the dressing room, he was probably like crying with laughter at it. Do you know what I mean? It was just, sometimes you do just have to laugh at how ridiculous that situation is. And I'm sure yeah. he was, you know... I'm, I'm sure, sure Palace fans the, aren't laughing, but, you know, absolutely. It, it's You obviously made the point about Gallagher, Gallagher being the one that, that scored the goal and how just the way football works, it's a funny game sometimes. But also the fact that Thiago Silva got the assist for Aubameyang's equaliser, it's like, how much salt do you want to pour on In the, the, wounds, the yeah. wounds of the Crystal Palace fans today? Because... Everything, all of the plot lines you could have wanted in that game just went went against them. Um, it was, uh, you do kind of have to feel for them because for them to come away with nothing from a game where they were so proactive and really put Chelsea under pressure, um, it's, it's really got a sting. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sure Palace fans aren't laughing, but it is the rest of them. Sometimes you just have to laugh. Uh, and I say that uh, watching Fulham with 10 men after three minutes for most of the game uh, on Saturday. Not a pleasant day to be a Fulham fan. We lost 4-1 to Newcastle who, United. We were very who good, had, actually. Who, who had it worse? You watching Fulham lose 4-1 or me watching a, a very dull 0-0 draw between Bournemouth and Brentford? Uh, oh, well, you had to travel for a lot longer than I did because all the trains were out. So I'm going to give you the edge but in terms of the actual full day. But I think the game was worse for me because after 10 minutes, I was like, there's absolutely no hope of Fulham getting anything here. And then that I think that sometimes that's the I wasn't, you know, it's one of those ones where you leave it, leave the game. And you're like, I'm not even angry. Because, you know, you lose 2-1 yeah. and it's like a last-minute goal or you lose 2-1 in a game that you dominated and you can leave feeling really angry. There was none of that. It was just left being like, that was a gigantic waste of time. And that's sometimes actually worse. I think for me, I had a really strong feeling going into the game that Ivan Tony was going to prove a little bit of a point about him not, yeah. you know, Gareth Southgate not giving him his England debut. And he didn't really do anything in the game. He had maybe one chance at the end of the game. It was a volley. A lot of people said he should have scored it. I thought it was a I hard chance. It, I thought it was a bit harsh. I, I thought it was a really hard chance because the ball was dropping behind him um so i guess unlike you even even in the 90th minute there was still a chance that brentford were going to get something out of that game um but it was just quite uninspiring but having said that the lamb biryani that uh bournemouth put on for the media was spot on although one gentleman was uh who rename nameless uh was struggling with it in terms of the the heat a lot Digestion. more than i was <laughs> no it, just in terms of he was he was sat opposite me and he was sweating and you know he said you know this is so hot like it's unbelievably hot and i said really Cause, yeah cause not I, too bad not this too bad. this isn't causing me any problems so uh but yeah i digress 
No, yeah, absolutely. Well, to be fair, the highlight of my uh, my weekend was actually um, Miguel Almiron scoring one of the best goals I've ever seen. And the kind of goal that I remember him scoring for Atlanta United uh, back with that <laughs> glorious partnership with Joseph Martinez. So uh, that was at least something I got to witness this weekend. A, a stunning goal from Miguel Almiron. Uh, and with that, it's time for us to call it a day here on the Athletic Soccer Show. We hope you've enjoyed our roundup of the big stories across Europe this weekend. All that's left for me to do is say thank you to all of you for listening. And thank you so much much to Jay Harris. Pleasure as always. It's good to be back after a week off. It's good to have you back, my friend. I've been Jack Collins. This has been your weekend review and we will see you next week. Take it easy, gang.